Welcome to Shift, a new travel local podcast series. On Shift, we explore the trends shaping travel, but more than that, we hope to provide our listeners with actions to help their business. Shift provides a balance of thought-provoking ideas, what really works on the ground, and how tourism businesses and other travel destinations can shift things into gear. Time to ride. Hey everybody, it's Will Harding here for Travel Local. Thanks for tuning in to the Shift Podcast. If you caught our first episode, thank you very much. In that first episode, we dedicated it to Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome of, of all things. And we titled it, We Don't Need Another Hero. And really it was about what are the solutions we're going to bring to the table that are going to help lift us out of this global problem that we're in, whether it comes down to environmental degradation, global warming, the rich getting richer, the poor getting worse off. We have a lot of triple bottom line problems that need triple bottom line solutions. And so we had on our show, if you caught that first episode, Jeremy Stone, who is the Dean of Community Economic Development for uh, Simon Fraser University. And we took a look at the community economic development principles that are gaining traction around the world for helping communities shift away from these traditional boom and bust resource industries to more local, regenerative, local economy solutions that generate stronger outcomes. And so we covered a lot of ground in this interview, but we just didn't have enough time in a single episode to get to the specific impacts that this great new model can have on reinventing and rejuvenating the way we do destination development and tourism. So without further ado, I'd like to present part two of that interview. Hope you enjoy. Well, I'm here today with Jeremy Stone, who is uh, with Simon Fraser University, who oversees their community economic development portfolio, and actually a pretty accomplished guy himself. You've worked on some incredible things. So how are you doing, Jeremy? I'm doing great. Working on some writing and whatnot and hold away for a few weeks. But yeah, things are good. You and I have spoken before. We've video chatted before. I know what your apartment looks like. That does not look like your apartment. Where the heck are you right now? It looks beautiful. Yeah, well, right now I'm just in uh, Jasper, Alberta at a uh, family place and just taking some time, like I said, to write and research and get some things out the door that I've been sitting on for a while. What does Jasper feel like right now? I mean, that's a tourism town walking the streets with COVID. What's it like? It's obviously different. The whole past year, Jasper has been the most different I've ever seen it. You know, I've been coming here for 15 years or more. And, you know, right now I think that everyone has weathered uh, the the storm per se, but, you know, it's still going to take time to bring people back. And even though Alberta and BC are both reopening, I think it will be some time before the stores are able to get, you know, full uh, customers in. The lodge, Jasper Park Lodge has been, pretty much just on a shoestring for a long time. And so, um, you know, like right now, even those of us who don't stay at the lodge, but use the facilities can't go there. You work with a lot of disaster recovery and relief. You were working with communities after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, Colorado floods, and uh, including with the economic recovery of downtown Manhattan after 9-11. Like, Tell me a little bit about that. Like, what was that like to be helping in Manhattan after 9-11, help them get them back on their feet? 
Well, you know, I had lived in New York before 9-11 and I left just a couple of weeks before. And then, you know, everything happened and I was gone for a few years. And and then I came back and obviously the the rebuilding was still ongoing. And, you know, a lot of the trauma was still there, obviously. And so I was working for a, a nonprofit and we were supporting the businesses that were impacted by the, the ongoing construction and uh, redevelopment of downtown. And, you know, I think that that's one of the really core things that we miss um, or that you know people just don't expect with any sort of disaster that you know when you you have a disaster event itself that impacts businesses impacts the economy but then rebuilding or redevelopment or any of the things that we do afterward they also have their impacts both positive and negative we were doing a lot of work um, right. just to give small loans to businesses give them technical assistance to try to figure out well what do we do now there's a ton of construction people can't get downtown do we stay downtown do we leave and then if there are businesses leaving downtown well you know as an economic developer like what do you what do you do you know do you incentivize more people to come down during this time of rebuilding you know like what is your plan long term uh there's a lot of different uh issues that you tweak something in one area and it impacts issues in other areas even before covid a lot of regions uh certainly around uh canada have been dealing with this phenomena where the old industries that they used to rely on have been going away or in a downturn, and now they're looking to new industries to recover. So you're currently working with community economic development. Uh, What's it like out there in terms of this change that was already happening even before COVID? Well, I mean, you know, I think that people are interested in community economic development. I mean, when I talk to municipalities and and economic development officers, there are a lot of people who are interested in some of what that approach brings. And, you know, to be specific about it, community economic development focuses on community-led planning. It focuses on real intense localism, like building up local small businesses, making sure that people are spending that money locally, that it's recirculating, uh, focusing on placemaking not placemaking as an attraction, but placemaking as creating a better life for people where they want to be in place, they want to invest in a place, etc. You're doing community economic development. You're promoting that there are really five principles that you really need to stick to if you want to do things differently and, and see the local economy solution come to life. What are those principles and run us through them a real top line way? You know, when we think about traditional economic development, you know, most of the the emphasis is around creating lots of jobs and creating a lot of income. However, we think that those of us who do community economic development thinks that think that there's a lot more than just that. And so, you know, these five principles describe the the breadth of the issues that we think are related. And the first is being livelihood focused. Um, you know, really taking a holistic approach to people and to uh, communities, putting people and their needs at the middle of economic development. And so, sometimes that means that an economic development project is actually a social work project, or it's a it's an environmental project, or something else, but it shapes our economy in a certain way that supports people's livelihoods. Uh, diversity and inclusion is the second principle, not just including people, which is critical. You know, we've had too long of a history of excluding people from the economy. And so it's absolutely important that we include everyone in the economy, regardless of their background, but also regardless of their ability. But then also um, being able to include lots of different types of businesses and and focus on a, a broader array of businesses. So we talk a lot about home-based businesses and small businesses that are not necessarily 
necessarily found in your economic development plan, but are, but are really important to the growth of the economy, the evolution of new ideas, innovation, etc. Uh, sustainability, this should be obvious, but you know, really being focused on how can we use the resources we have in a way that doesn't compromise their use for future generations. Uh, being place-based, this is important, uh, not just for an attraction strategy, but for really focusing on how we create places for people that they care about and that they want to be in and using the different parts of place to connect with people in a way that is more than just marketing to them, that it, that's really like connecting to them as people. And then finally, community controlled, uh, making sure that everyone is involved in leadership, that they're part of the plans and planning stages. Um, and that, you know, in the long term, all these things that we do, they only stick if people are on board. If we have, you know, a few people who are making decisions, sometimes the the new ideas stick and sometimes they don't. But if you bring the whole community in, usually this lasts for a longer time. What's the power of growing deep, not broad, in your opinion? And how can we use more of that thinking in tourism to build more businesses? There's an obvious desire to, to go big um, and to go broad because it's sometimes it's easier that way. Instead of cutting your lawn one blade of grass at a time, it's easier to bring in a, a big you know industrial mower and, and chop it all down. So in economic terms, you know it's better to have I mean it's easier to have a, a larger outfit that employs a lot of people and, and it can become a juggernaut that you know carries the economy around it. Uh, the problem is is what happens when that juggernaut you know runs ashore and sort of falls apart we see that a lot in the forestry industry and other um, natural resource industries where we have boom bust cycles and and then suddenly you have a community that who has been dependent on this one big business then is suddenly decimated i've done some research with a ccpa on communities that lost mills and the stories that you hear about suddenly there's no volunteer fire department because like everybody who was fighting fires has had to leave there's suddenly no more school teachers because as you know spouses had to leave to find work elsewhere they took the teacher spouse with them and so that all brings us you know especially within community economic development to focus on how can you create lots and lots and lots of small opportunities not just small in terms of hours but small in terms of it's one business that maybe hires three people and another business that's just a home-based business but if you can provide a diversity of opportunities um, redundant opportunities so that if one business goes down that same type of business has you know that same type of industry has other businesses that sort of pick up the slack you have a resilience that is just not apparent when you have one large entity and and you know resilience gets thrown around for a lot of things now but you know at its core resilience just means maintaining our quality of life maintaining the functions in our community even during times of disruption or distress and so you know focusing on all these diversities of opportunities even if you have something like covid that happens and maybe wipes out a whole industry or two where people are just locked down you have lots of other opportunities opportunities that people can pivot into. And if you've been looking at it from a workforce perspective, cross-training people, getting them lots of different opportunities to um, so that they can fall back on when uh, they can't do their primary skill. Again, it just creates that resilience so that families don't lose both incomes at once. They've got you know different opportunities for making income. What are some of the multiplier effects that they've been talking about? I can't remember off the top of my head, but you know the, the power of growing a local economy in terms of employment, returns, to taxes. Do you, do you have some of those numbers at the top of your head or, or can you speak anecdotally to that? 
you know, there have been a lot of studies done uh, by local BC in British Columbia that has, you know, looked at many different communities and, and measured some of these multiplier effects. Amy Robinson there ha- has done a lot of really great research. Uh, Michael Schumann obviously has done a lot of research in the States and in Canada. And there are a, a range of numbers, but it's usually something around 70% or so of, of money going through a local small business gets recirculated in the community, whereas approximately 30 to 35% recirculate in the community from a larger business, uh, like a multinational corporation, etc. And then the balance of that goes to shareholders who live elsewhere. They go to procurement businesses, the supply chain that is not locally based. You know, a lot of times you'll see companies when they do their printing, they don't use the local printer. They you know, have a lot of stuff that's brought in from a central printing company that reduces their costs overall. But that money, again, doesn't go into that local community that host that business. And so one other thing to say is that local BC has really charted a lot of this is that it's more than just procurement and, and some of the, the income. It's also how connected people are to the community. Are they doing philanthropy? Are they investing into uh, the little league team, etc.? You'll see all kinds of businesses, the multinationals, etc., also having a philanthropic arm. But Overall, there's more investment into philanthropy by uh, local small businesses. And there's also a completely different um, experience around employment. We often see local small businesses able to deal with hiring people with barriers and other issues that a larger company might not have a lot of patience for people who are struggling. They have a little bit more regimented rules. And you know, you'll see oftentimes in local small businesses, uh, them supporting people who, who need a little bit of an extra step and, and people People want to see that because they care about the people in that community. They are the cousin of that person or the aunt or uncle of that person or went to high school with that person and they want to see them succeed. I want to just dig into this concept of placemaking because I've seen it appear in a number of different tourism scenarios. One of the things I've noticed, though, is that over decades, you have communities who have all had the same access to support. They've all had the same access to expertise, support, dollars, resources, tools. And yet you've seen some communities thrive and other communities who just haven't been able to get the momentum that they want to get things going. And this kind of discord or lack of momentum came down sometimes to identity. Can you talk a little bit about how that we maybe need to pay a little bit more attention to identity and how it drives development? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think there's been a lot of uh, research done around place and a lot of... I've got a whole stack of nerdy books on placemaking. And I think the most interesting thing about place is, is that place almost never is manufactured. It just emerges. People develop... Uh, a place and a sense of identity through everyday practice. And and you can't necessarily just bring in something and say, oh, we're going to cite this attraction here, or we're going to change all the the streetscapes, etc., and suddenly make a different place, or we're going to you know up our sense of place in some dramatic degree. It really comes down to, well, is that the place that people live each day? And is that the place that people, you know, produce themselves in an individual way in the way that they go about their lives. And so this has, I think, a lot of important learnings. You know, one is that 
people have to create the place. It can't just be created onto them. We have to, you know, sort of get people excited and get them to do these things and create these things themselves. And this goes back to the community controlled principle of just, you know, having people sort of lead and let you know where the place should be developed and how it should be developed. Uh, but then also there's a lot to think about in terms of who people see themselves are, how they see their community, what is that identity of the people and their community. When I talk to, to municipalities about what they want, some people are like, yes, we are the ex-capital of Canada. You know, we're we're this place that we want everybody to come and check out and we're going to benefit from it. And then you talk to people in other places and they're like, we like our quiet town and we don't want everybody here, but we do want to have some increase in some tourism. We want to have some people come here. Uh, we want some people to come live here, but we don't want them to buy up the real estate and drive the prices through the roof. I think that has you know, an important impact on decision-making. Are we going to, as economic developers, as leaders in our community, how do we actually get to a place that is beneficial for everyone? And so I think Part of it is creating those plans and creating your place strategies, et cetera, with people from the community involved, uh, not just look at what worked in some other town, but really look at what is going to grow organically within your own town. But I also think that it's about a, a longer term you know, acceptance that not all of your ideas are going to stick. Again, we always focus on the small. We really believe that if you do little pilot projects, if you start developing small clusters, etc., then that stuff can really get grounded. People see it as a part of themselves and then they grow it themselves. If you just sort of decide we're going to have this big center, we're going to have this big identity, it's going to have 50,000 tourists a year or 100,000 or whatever, and this is who we are now, I don't know. Uh, you know not, not many people uh, gravitate towards that unless it was just such a perfect fit that they're like, oh, this is a no-brainer. I think it speaks to the power of authentic culture and how when you take time to let that culture manifest itself, you end up with stronger destinations and experiences in the long run. I'm thinking of mountain biking, right? Like mountain biking in British Columbia has been this uh, sport for 30 years with dedicated locals building up trails, spending a lot of volunteer time building up trails, building that culture that eventually got commercialized in a way with resorts opening up mountain bike parks, investing millions and millions of dollars into cross-country trail development. But it all started because of that local tight culture that didn't just, you know, you can't manufacture that. You can't create that overnight. So I think that's a valuable lesson. I love this idea of community powered. One of my favorite examples of, of uh, community powered development is in Port Moody. There's this row, Brewer's Row, it's called now. There's nothing there. There's nothing but old commercial space full of businesses I'd never heard of. And all of a sudden it got rezoned. Some brewers went in there. They, now they call it Brewer's Row. Then the park development started to happen. New ice cream shop expansions happened. And it just kept on building and building and building. But all because of these informal networks, these associations took hold and started to take a responsibility for the development. So where I'm going with this is a lot of city officials or local destination marketers are always stressed out because they think that when they make plans, the buck always stops with them. Tell us a little bit about what a community-powered solution looks like and how do you get there? 
to me, there's no formula for this kind of thing. You know, it's not like we just do X, Y, Z and you have a, a community powered solution. It, it's more of a symbiotic relationship between leaders, finance and the community. Being able to have some leadership that is actually uh, attuned to what's going on locally, who's actually, you know, taking what we call an asset based community development approach, like looking at what are the real assets of the community? What are their strengths? What are the opportunities? And then trying to see, well, what would what would be necessary to assist any of those in, in taking root? Having a finance community that is there, ready to invest, ready to take some risk, and ready to do it in a way that is sometimes atypical. Every cool thing that I think that we've ever seen seemed really atypical and strange at first. You know, even the entire craft brewing industry for the longest time was very fringe. And in places like Oregon, it was flourishing. But then I moved to Vancouver, gosh, in 2008. And the things that they were calling craft brewery then were not craft brews at all. And it was just sort of overnight almost that it just started to change and flourish. And I think it's because finally there was the money there for it. People have been brewing beer but it really took risk capital going into that. And then those two things, I think, are surrounded, obviously, and I should have probably said these folks first, but, you know, they're surrounded by the people. Do you have people who feel enabled? You know, do they feel like they can take risk? Do they have some belief in the longevity of the community? And I would really push back on this just being about money and regulations. Because whenever we talk about this, it always goes down to, okay, well, we need to deregulate, make sure there's just a lot of money available. And I don't find that to always be the case. I don't think that that's just, you know, you have a completely deregulated place and it makes the economy better. You don't necessarily see those types of communities prospering. When you see communities prospering, it's because a lot of the, the entrepreneurs believe in a common set of values with the other folks in their community, both finance leaders, residents, and they're all working together towards this common goal of like, hey, you know, we've got some some great assets here, some great skills. We could do things like this. And they start supporting each other and they get more support from from the government and from elsewhere. And that to me is is exciting to see. What I love about community economic development, at least uh, some of the tools that you've been talking about today, asset-based community economic development, I think ABCD, seems like a real practical way. Like, Tell me a little bit about how you walk people through that kind of a process. What are some of the aha moments that come out of it? Well, I think that the way that, that we approach it at SFU is by sitting down with communities and just asking simple questions like, what are you good at? What are you passionate about? You know, what do you love about your community? When we interview different sectors, you know, we'll meet with the businesses and leaders of each sector in a community and we're like, you know, what's the future here? What are the possibilities? What are some of the barriers to realizing those possibilities? And and you hear just a ton of stuff. People are like, you know what? We could be the wasabi capital of BC, you know, because we just happen to have this soil and climate that's perfect for this. But here are some challenges. And I think that, again, we get caught up in the easy approaches. We're not going to try to push on government to change some of the bigger regulations to allow certain kinds of work to happen. We're not going to push on the banks to fund something that might seem weird, but that could really catch hold. Once we have these uh, conversations with people about all these different assets, it's really easy to create some excitement. 
There's a ton of naysayers and there's always this feeling that if it hasn't been done, then it probably won't get done because there was some problem that was challenging it. But I still think that once you get started getting people excited, you're actually creating a different perspective on a community. And and we'll 100% say here is that you definitely have a lot of self-loathing in communities that are struggling or that are not as successful as perhaps other communities. You know, you've got a lot of stuff where people are angry, they're upset, they're saying no to everything. And it's like, that is not possible here. We are not built like that. We can't do that. I hate the cheesy sayings, but like, a lot of this is around the art of the possible, creating these scenarios and showing people what's possible and giving them an opportunity to pursue it. I think that that starts with getting people to think positively about themselves and look at what they have locally that are positives and then helping them you know, build the bridge to that. Well, Jared, I think we've covered a lot of ground today. It's been really, really interesting. I can't thank you enough and not particularly happy that you're in Jasper and I'm sitting here in a rainy office, but... Uh... Uh, well, I'm basically just writing for the next few weeks. And so I'm, I'm locked in. I, I don't even know if I'll enjoy much of the outdoors. Um, I just needed to get away from, from everything and focus. And then hopefully by the end of the summer, I'll have a book written and then I'll, I'll see where that takes me. What's the book about? Or are you not ready to say right now? Um, no, it's fine. It's uh, I'm writing a dissertation on uh, disaster-induced gentrification in New Orleans. So the displacement of low-income people after disaster and how our planning, good and bad, sort of creates that. I've got a ton of research I've just been sitting on for a long time. I need to write it. And then I'll have like two or 300 pages of, of text and somebody will read it. They'll be forced to read it, either pass me or not. And then we'll see if anybody else wants to read it. Well, it sounds like we might have another reason to get you back on the show at a later time. Anyway, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. Take care of yourself and Jasper. Make sure you take a break from that writing and get out for a hike or two. That was part two of our interview with Jeremy Stone, Dean of Community Economic Development at Simon Fraser University. If you didn't catch the first part of our interview, you can get that at travellocalmarketing.ca along with our other podcasts in the Travel Local Shift series. Uh, You can also learn a little bit more about Travel Local's approach to destination development that's built on the foundation of community economic development at travellocalmarketing.ca again. If you liked what you're hearing today, please give us a follow on LinkedIn and a like on Facebook. Everybody, I hope you have a great day.